Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 14. Tailwea Faces, Part 1, Chapters 18 to 19, The Warrior Queen. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I am joined by Matt, as seen on YouTube, Bush. <laughs> I was trying really hard to figure out what A-S-O-Y-T could stand for. <laughs> as I was reading the introduction, I was trying to remember what I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> I greatly enjoy these. Well, I'm excited for today. Today, actually, I'm kind of excited because I just got off of that talk that I did, and I'm excited that this week's episode, I won't do more because I know we have to get into drink of the week, but... Um, False self, true self stuff here. False self popping back up. It should be a good episode as we see that he tries to suppress it. But as we know, that never works. Not in the long term. Nope. All well, right. I am drinking Glenmorangie La Santa, which is one of my favorites. And what non-alcoholic beverage are you drinking today? I am drinking honey chai turmeric tea. It's actually really delicious too. Well, why don't you compliment it with a delightful quotation from Till We Have Faces? Okay. I saw him again with Psyche on his knees. Prettier than Aphrodite, he had said. Yes, but that was Psyche, said my heart. If she were still with us, he would stay. It was Psyche he loved, never me. I knew while I said it that it was false. Yet I would not or could not put it out of my head. So this is referring to when the fox is... Going to be leaving. She sets him free. We won't go into more details there, but that's what she meant by I saw him. And she's just dreaming about how he would stay if it was Psyche here. But what really intrigued me and why I chose this is that she knew that that was a false thought. Like almost like if we were to get out of now Orwell in this book in our lives when the enemy speaks negative lies to us. But I love how she says, yet yeah, I would not or I could not put it out of my head. Sometimes it's hard to fight negative thoughts, and so I, I just resonated with me. Nice. Well, with that, cheers. Cheers, my friend. So tell us, how did your talk go? Because you gave that talk at Notre Dame this weekend. Yes. I'd give myself a B+. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the mark of a humble man, not, not, not quite taking yourself to an A, thereby demonstrating your humility. Good choice. I'm, I'm trying to be honest. Like, so I actually thought it was an A with practicing, right? The, the, day, the morning of, I did a couple of run-throughs and really felt comfortable. But you can't really, I still haven't given enough in life where when I get up there, nerves hit. And I was well enough prepared to be able to go through the main points and communicate them well with confidence. But when you don't have a clear mind because of nerves, you can't play off of reactions very well. And that's what takes it from a B plus to an A. And the other thing too was you really need to figure out your audience. I assume this would just be average Notre Dame students. So I'm somewhat sharing my journey from my false self to the true self that ultimately led me to Catholicism in these wow moments of Lewis's truth on theosis, like the son of God became man. So men could become sons of God, like this wow moment for me that brought me back to the sacramental life in full force. Well, I, I get to the point where I ask people, how many of you guys have heard of the term theosis? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know about this until a couple of years ago, maybe 10%, 20%, probably 75%. These were like the <laughs> daily masters who are studying theology or masters in theology that were way beyond me. So right in that moment, I just like, oh, <laughs> this is just, oh, <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, it was great. They, they all, at the end, they all came up and, had some good questions and we talked and I do believe it actually went really well. I, I believe they liked maybe my own take on the spiritual journey and my own journey itself. And I think people enjoy hearing that, but I don't think this was like new truth to them. <laughs> well, that's good. Keep you humble. Keep you humble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to say before we kicked off, uh, we have launched Patreon yes. and Slack is going great guns. And there is now a dedicated channel on Slack where listeners can post questions, which I'll put to Andrew Lazo when he comes on the show at the end of part one. Uh, 
So if you want to ask him questions, sign up on Patreon and come on the Slack channel. Yeah, that will probably be, we should just forewarn people for the next few weeks. You know, we were excited for the Patreon. You guys probably heard that episode. Many of you probably just skipped it when you started hearing it, which is okay. But we're really excited for it. So if you do feel called to that, um, go check out the Patreon page. Uh, and that Slack channel is a pretty cool incentive. I'm I'm loving it. I, I've, I've spent my whole life getting away from distractions and social media, and now it's about to be destroyed by Slack because I get... 50 notifications a day with conversations, but that's just how robust and active the conversation is right now. So if you guys join, that would be wonderful. You can take more of my time. And with that, let's talk about chapter 18. After checking on the king, Orwell meets Redaval, afraid of what will happen to her when he dies, and curious as to the identity of the handsome man in the house. The fox apologizes to Orwell for the pressure he put on her to abandon the duel. Bardia coaches her in anticipation of the fight and gets her to slaughter a pig in preparation. As queen, Orwell grants the fox his freedom, but is horrified to realize that he might leave. He comes to her later that evening to announce that he will remain in Glom. After a night of restless thoughts, Orwell visits Trunia. Redival arrives with wine for them, after which Trunia suggests a possible marriage. After some sword practice with Bardia, they go to the king's bedchamber to find her Samala. While searching, the king dies, which results in only a brief pause before they resume their search. Well, done as always, David. Thank you. 150 words is really hard to compress an entire chapter into. I'm going to give you an A-. minus. Thank you. Got room for improvement. <laughs> so this chapter begins with Orwell going and checking on the king because she wants to know if he's dead yet. <laughs> she says, no lover nor doctor ever watched each change of a sick man's breath or pulse more closely than I. And this kind of reminds me of Monty Python. Have you seen the Holy Grail? Long time ago and hated it. A guy comes through and says, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And a guy is carrying somebody on his shoulder and the guy on the shoulder says, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, maybe I would find it funny now. You, you need to watch it with a group of people. Holy, okay. Gra- Holy Grail is, is, I think, the funniest. Okay. Uh, or go see Spamalot, which is a theatre production of it. Anyway, Monty Python aside, uh, so Redival comes in and she's crying because she's worried about what will happen to them when the king dies. And, of course, she wants to know who the cute guy is who's hanging around the palace. Uh, and that's Trunia, one of the princes of Fars, who turned up in the last chapter. She has no shame. No. But Orwell is, she has just got a silver tongue in these two chapters. When, uh, when Redival asks what will happen to them once the king dies, Orwell says, I shall be queen, Redival. Your treatment shall be according to your behavior. Yes, she is stern. I mean, this is completely different from her old self. This is, you know, you picture in this this whole entire episode, I guess you want to call it these next two chapters, like that person that was bullied their whole life and then they gained power. I mean, this is Orwell. Well, uh, in Orwell's defense. No, there's she, no uh, in Orwell's uh, defense, man. None. No, I, I'm going to defend her because... Earlier in the book, she told Redival that if she ever became queen, she would hang her up by her, by her fingers, by her thumbs, uh, until she was dead. And so here she's saying, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to keep you on a very tight leash. So that's your defense of her? She, yeah. She gains power and becomes a bully, but just less of a bully? Yeah, she could have been worse. <laughs> and and, and uh, Redival, she starts fawning over Orwell. You know, saying about how what a wonderful sister she is and wishing her joy and stuff. And none of that impresses Orwell. And I will say that in this, Orwell and I are very similar. You know, say what you mean, mean what you say. Lots of pretty words and lots and lots of pretty words mean very little to me. In fact, it's more liable to make me suspicious of your motives. So you would have probably had Redival say, I know we haven't always got along. I'm kind of afraid what you're going to do to me, but please just keep me around. <laughs> there you go. I love though how she asks for a husband. She is truly shameless. Yes, and again, Orwell's just her response is 
Yes, probably two. Uh, I've dozens of Sons of Kings hanging in my wardrobe. But go. <laughs> Which I I wasn't sure what you made of that, but I got the sense one, she's kind of mocking her, I don't know, um, looseness maybe? Or like, yeah, I got a couple for you. Like her just her need for boys, maybe? I, I think she's mocking her need for boys, but also the ridiculousness of the request. Because we've heard before that none of the other princes wants to touch Clome because it's not a great kingdom. Oh, yes. And the ridiculousness of just this is right around the presumably the death of the king and she just doesn't care one bit. She's just, again, thinking about herself. Yeah. Uh, the king isn't even dead yet. Yeah. She's just thinking of herself again, which we I don't remember where it was, but many chapters ago that happened again, I think, right around Psyche's death. She also mm-hmm. starts thinking about herself. Yes. Are they going to try and kill me too? Yep. That's what it was. You're always good for a memory, David. <laughs> I, have my fu- I have my function here. <laughs> Next up, the fox comes in. And after commenting that the king might last for several days yet, he apologizes to Orwell. And I wondered if you might choose this for the quote of the week. He, he says, Daughter, I did badly last night. I think this offer to fight the prince yourself is foolish and what's more unseemly. But I was wrong to weep and beg and try to force you by your love. Love is not a thing to be so used. I think I, I always have a few in the running. I believe I had this one in the running. I made a game time decision. Because yeah, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is pretty much a huge theme of the entire book. And it's the opposite of Orwell. Yes. He says he was wrong to do this, and Orwell hasn't yet worked out that it's wrong to do this sort of thing. Yes, and if listeners, if you don't remember, this is exactly what she did with Psyche. She used Psyche's love of her, meaning Orwell, against herself. She forced Psyche to leave her place of happiness instead of letting Orwell die. And then Bardia comes in, saying that a herald has come from Prince Argon, so... Argon is the brother of Trunia. So these are the two brothers of Fars who are currently in a civil war that's, you know, not very civil. So they go to the pillar room and they meet this herald. And one thing I noticed when I was reading the chapters uh, for today's episode, there were a lot of mentions, a lot of references to clothing and uh, being finely dressed. And also, interestingly, it's always the men. It's actually not the women who are, who are concerned with, with clothes. Again, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but again, it was just the, the, the idea of till we have faces about revealing our true selves. There's something about dressing in finery whereby you're actually hiding who you really are or you're putting on a show. But in this case, the Herald was described as dressed as fine as a peacock. I more enjoyed in this scene, again, the example of Orwell's wit. She's just, I like how you call it silver tongue. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Prince Argon, he's accepted the combat, and he, through the, his herald, he says that he's actually going to not stain his sword. He's going to bring some rope with him, and he's going to hang Orwell after he's disarmed her. And Orwell's response is wonderful. She says, that's a weapon in which I profess no skill, and therefore it's barely justice that your master should bring it. But then he's older than I. His first battle was, I think, long ago. <laughs> so we'll concede it to make up for his years. I love that. And then and I love how the messenger picks right up on it and says, well, I can't relay that message back to him. <laughs> but she doesn't care because she knows that now it's been said and he's heard it. This is going to spread far and wide. Yep. E- even if Argon doesn't actually get to hear it himself. She is just... This is bad. I shouldn't be saying that we enjoy her wit and her silver tongue because we're essentially praising her false self. She's now earning praise from us because of her false self, which is exactly what the false self is designed to do. We're terrible, David. Well, a lot of comedy usually isn't very kind. I'm okay with it. (laughs) They then spend the next hour or so sorting out details of the combat. And Oral writes that the fox was growing in pain while all of this was being decided upon. Uh, as it was becoming more real and irreversible for him. And then she writes, and I think this is the transition that happens over these two chapters. I was mostly the queen now, but Orwell would whisper a cold word in the queen's ear at times. She's speaking of herself as these two different people, as Orwell and as the queen. And the image that this put into my mind was in Lord of the Rings, the, in the movie versions, when Gollum and Smeagol 
are talking to each other. You see these two different people with two very different attitudes. And the question is, which of them is going to win out? I almost made this a quote because I would say this could be probably the most important lesson that we could take away from our own spiritual journeys in this chapter. I talked about this in my talk, the false self. I actually called my false self little Maddie Bush. And we, (laughs) yeah, and LMB. LMB from high school days and try to suppress that, you know, that shame and that, that part of you that you don't think will be loved. But the problem is it will always come back up. If you don't actually learn to accept that part of yourself and know that you're loved despite those things, you can't hide it. And that's what we're going to see all throughout this chapter with Orwell as, or as we call her, the queen now, as we hear those whispers in the garden, which this isn't giving too much away because it happened in the previous episode. And so this is something that keeps coming back up. Her, her Orwell self, she's trying to push away, doesn't seem to yet be going away. And you might actually notice that in the summaries for this episode, I don't actually refer to her as Oral, but the Queen, because all of the major actions in these chapters are performed by the Queen. I started to write my notes and call her the Queen as well, and I was debating, do we call her Orwal or do we call her the Queen? <laughs> I've been going back and forth. I think if we were really careful, we could use each name depending upon what's actually happening. Uh, but I, I'm generally going to call her the Queen when she's doing stuff and Orwal when she's thinking. Okay. So next up, there's a lot that happens in this chapter. Next up, Arnim arrives, and he's dressed in the priest's robes. We met him last episode. He was the junior priest, and the fact that he's now in these robes indicates that the old priest has died. And after the initial shock of seeing him dressed like that, Orwell realizes that things are going to be different under his priesthood. Uh, she notes that he would never be terrible like the old priest. He was only Arnim, with whom I had driven a very good bargain yesterday. There was no feeling that Ungit came into the room with him. I wondered in this scene how much this reveals, was it the fear driving her, like her own inner fear that was driving a lot of her hatred towards the old priest. And now that she's got this new self and is not near as afraid, it's not that Arnon's drastically different than the old priest. It's that she is no longer afraid and projecting that fear onto the priest. I was trying to figure out if there's something there or not. I think it's both. I think now that she has this queen persona and that is giving her strength. I also think Arnim is cut from a different cloth from the old priest. And also, I can't but feel she has seen Arnim barefaced. Mm. She has seen him as simply the man. She possibly even grew up around him. And he is now the priest. And so she knows about the man who is underneath the bird mask, so to speak. Maybe that's the word you use right there. She knows. Um, kind of playing to that fear thing, but when we know something, we're no longer afraid of it. And all these masks prevent us from really knowing fully something. And so when she doesn't, I mean, her fear of the gods is she doesn't really know the gods. Seems like her fear has a lot to do with her lack of knowing. Hmm. Something there, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's, there's something definitely to be mined there. I'm not sure what though. Yeah, maybe that experimental analytical knowledge, a better framework helps you. Yeah. Now, while Arnim and the fox go into the bedchamber, Bardia takes Orwell outside to talk. And the focus of their discussion is preparing her to take, the, take a life, to kill Argon, and not to hesitate. Because Bardia says, you know, believe me, this is the hard thing to do. I mean, the first time. Uh, there's, there's something in the man that goes against it. And this put me in mind of Casino Royale. Have you seen it? It was the first Daniel Craig Bond movie. I can't wait for his new one. I mean, he's fantastic. Yeah. I, Quantum of Solace was terrible. But yes, I loved, I loved Casino Royale. But there you see the transformation of the first, first time he takes a life and then the second time. Mm, I don't remember that specifically, but I believe it's, you. It's right at the end of the movie. And, you know, whereas the first one was brutal uh, at the end of the movie, I think I'm pretty sure it's at the end. He just kills somebody in cold blood, you know, is all debonair and looks like it hasn't affected him at all Hmm. but bardia is preparing her to do something that is horrific to take another man's life and arawal says that she doesn't think that she'd hesitate and to play it out in her head she thinks about stabbing the king to test this hypothesis uh which is kind of dark you know your father who is dying i was like would i stab him yes i would if she hates him yeah 
no love lost there. It really does go to show, I think we see in other episodes or chapters, so much of her ugliness is because of the king. I mean, that's where a lot of it gets rooted from. We saw other scenes where other things would confirm it. But I remember even in this chapter, there was some moment, it's not coming to my mind right now, we'll probably come across it though, where it just, she says something again that confirms the king really did this to her. He messed her up. Uh Uh-huh. Bardia says that regardless, he's going to send her through the exercise. And he says that he does this with all of the recruits, which gives you some idea of something of how he views Orwell. And the exercise is the slaughtering of a pig. And Orwell says that she realized when she had to do this, that in a flash, if she shrank from this challenge, there would be less of the queen and more of Orwell. The Orwell being her, her feminine, her innocent, her kind side for what it is, versus the queen, which she in her own words has said is much more masculine and hard and cold. And unemotional. Yeah. You can't help to wonder if this is where you had some of Joy's influence in her feminine versus Lewis's masculine and frustration that he doesn't show emotion towards her. Mm. You wonder. But she kills the pig and she then plans to have the choicest parts with Bardia, the fox and Trunia if she survives this combat. We're going to find out eventually she doesn't get quite that choice. But making most of her time as queen... She does something that's really nice. So since I seem to be defending Orwell these days, I'm going to say this is a good thing. She declares the fox a free man. And she says that she's doing this because she wants to make sure that he isn't mocked or neglected or even sold if she dies and Redival then becomes queen. You sure that's out of kindness if she's putting it that way? But in reality, she doesn't want to see the things she she needs so much. Redival enjoying the benefits of that, I guess. Possibly, but she, she doesn't really write like that. She doesn't say that she doesn't want Redival to have the benefit of the fox. It's, she seems to want to set him free so that he isn't under her power. But having said that, after she's declared him free, she's then plunged into despair because she realizes that, well, he might actually leave Gloam. And she says, Grandfather, I cried, no queen now, all oral, even all child. Do they mean that you'll leave me? Go away? She's clearly terrified that she is, she's come to rely on him, and the thought of him going back to the Greeklands scares her, scares her beyond belief. That, not even the, the sentence, all Orwell, that's the one right after that, even all child. So much, I think, this false self is bearing the child within us. And, and I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm referring to now us as just real people, not in the book, but so much in life. You ever had that where you feel like that little self, you feel really small, that little part of you comes crying up, little David Bates is screaming and for some reason. And then I'm not going to get into psychology here, but yeah, that, that I thought there was a lot of truth to that statement right there. I felt my little Maddie Bush come up. Mm-hmm. And the fox is clearly overwhelmed. He says... You mean I could, I can. It wouldn't matter even if I died on the way. Not if I could get down to the sea. There'd be tunnies, olives. No, it'd be too early in the year for olives. But the smell of the harbours and walking about the market talking, real talk. But you don't know. This is all foolishness. None of you know. I should be thanking you, daughter. But if ever you love me, don't speak to me now. Tomorrow, let me go. He pulled his cloak over his head and groped his way out of the room. And this is a very similar description of what he happened at the death of Psyche, when he was trying to philosophize, and he was just overcome with emotion, pulls his cloak over his head, and leaves the room as soon as he can. And let's remember this moment, because you've already revealed that he stays in your summary. And there he comes up with excuses of why he's going to stay, but here he reveals his true thought. He even says, but if ever you loved me, don't speak to me now. Tomorrow, let me go. Like he, he knows he can't handle if for one second she tries to keep him to stay or express how much it'll hurt her for losing him, it'll just destroy him because he does genuinely love her. And so that's it. Really, he reveals a beauty here and a love for um, the queen. And I think he's trying to 
I'd actually say Oral. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I knew you were. I was like, I'm going to say Queen and see if he cracks it. <laughs> uh, but I think something else he's trying to do there when he asks her not to speak is he wants to be able to try and make this, this decision as freely as possible. And if she lays on the emotional blackmail, he's not going to be able to make that choice as freely. Mm-hmm. And part of me wonders that if he does feel that pressure, would he then come to re- resent her? Mm, yeah, that could be. I also liked um, right in this scene as the queen's starting to realize all of this, and obviously it's hurting her, how she says, and now this game of queenship, which had buoyed me up and kept me busy ever since I woke that morning, failed me utterly. Again, the false self. We put this false self on. She's literally admitting like this game of queenship, this false self, which has buoyed me up. That's the whole point of it. And it keeps us going. It keeps us busy. Let her down. Wow. Because this is her defense against the gods Mm -hmm. to remain always busy. And now that there's a, a break in the activities and the possibility of losing the fox, she falls apart. And Orwell goes for a walk and she carefully avoids the area where she used to spend time with Psyche and the fox. And she, she writes about her thoughts at this point and she says, It embittered me that the fox should even desire to leave me. He had been the central pillar of my whole life, something I thought as sure and established, and indeed as little thanked, as sunrise and the mere earth. In my folly I thought I was to him as he was to me. Fool, said I to myself. Have you not yet learned that you are that to no one? What are you to Bardia? As much perhaps as the old king was. His heart lies at home with his wife and her brats. If you mattered to him, he'd never let you fight. What are you to the fox? His heart was always in the Greeklands. You were, maybe, the solace of his captivity. They say a prisoner will tame a rat. He comes to love the rat, after a fashion. But throw the door open, strike off his fetters, And how much will he care for that rat then? And yet, how could he leave us after so much love? And she goes on with your quote of the week, basically saying that he would stay for Psyche, but not me. Yeah, she, the negative narrative that she has in her head. And now here I am going to sympathize with Orwell because (laughs) it is amazing. I've seen it in my own life very frequently. I've seen it in those around me who confide in me. It is amazing and it's dangerous. And listeners, we always have to remember this. Negative narratives often aren't true. It's amazing how much we can play them in our heads with minimal information, with imperfect information about ourselves, about what others think of us, about situations. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. She's creating this massive negative narrative. And I mean, the fox doesn't think of her as a rat. All right. You know, there's another scenario here. He loves her very much, but he also does desire home. They're not mutually exclusive. That's, that's the real story here. Um, just breaks my heart. And I think it's particularly when you get into that negative thinking and allow it to snowball. I just thinking just recently, I, I was in a real funk and I even said to Marie, it's like, I know that I'm not thinking clearly or like, if I took each of these individually, I can reason it out that this isn't really an accurate representation of reality. I'm, I'm being hurt by something that wasn't meant to hurt me. Uh, and, you know, the, the uh, frustration in my life is actually kind of a small thing, but it's like when they're all brought in and compressed together and presented as an entire case, you start feeling like the world, the gods, God is against you. And the only way you counter it is with truth. And sometimes that takes someone else to point it out. Mm. Now, the fox comes to her that evening very grave and quiet, as though he's been tortured, she says. And after reciting a few proverbs, he says that he's going to stay. And she even says that he goes on to try and make little of what he's doing. He tries to make little of the fact that he's going to stay in Gloam, as if he feared I would dissuade him from it. And she says, but I, with my face on his breast, felt only the joy. Mm. Which isn't good. She knows what he's sacrificing and... There doesn't appear to be anything inside her that would rather see him happy. Yeah, that's insane. And Orwell naturally has a restless night, thinking over all of the recent strange changes. And she she writes, 
It was so new and strange that I could not that night even feel my great sorrow, that being the death of Psyche, or the separation from Psyche. It's as good as a death. And she says that this astonished her. She said, one part of me made to snatch that sorrow back. It said, Orwell dies if she ceases to love Psyche. She she almost wants to feel the pain. But there's this other voice, this Gollum and Smeagol playing out. This other voice said, let Orwell die. She would never have made a queen. And again, I think of the recent Star Wars movies when Kylo Ren talks about letting the past die. I think of here the David Brenner. that I, I brought him into one of the blogs, but false self, true self stuff. He talks about if you want to identify your false self, he gives a couple things, but one of them is your compulsions. And you'll be attached to your compulsions. It'll feel like you're losing something when you lose them. I mean, psyche is a compulsion of Orwell. An excessive attachment is other words he uses. I mean, this is insane. She even knows that some part of her will die if she ceases to love psyche. That's how much her love for psyche became a god. And as Lewis said, it then becomes a demon. Mm. And they're both wrong. She She's horrified the fact that she could feel something other than extreme pain for losing Psyche. But the alternative that is presented to her is just locking it all away in the same way that she locked up Psyche's room, in the same way that she talked about building up a dam inside of herself. Yeah, we're going to see that play out more and more. Well, on the day before the battle, crowds of the people begin to form and members of the aristocracy come and visit the queen. And she comments that they were all clearly intrigued by her veil and what lay behind it. And Orwell visits Trunia and tells him what's going to happen, that a champion is going to fight for him. And she calls for some wine and, surprise, surprise, <laughs> who brings it in but Renaval? <laughs> oh, man. And I appreciated what the, the queen here said, but actually this would be Orwell because these are her emotions. She's angry and she goes, I was a fool not to have foreseen it. I knew her well enough to guess that once there was a strange man in the house, She'd eat her way through stone walls <laughs> in order to be seen. Yet even I was astonished to see what a meek, shy, modest, dutiful younger sister she could make of herself carrying that wine with her downcast eyes. Wow. And so then that begs the question, is Redval playing? Is she putting this on? Or is Oral actually noticing that there is more to her sister than... The trollop, the, uh, the the loose girl that she has seemed to always thought of her. I just love she catches uh, Trunia's eyes, which is her intention. And then he actually suggests that if the champion wins, a marriage happens. Mm-hmm. And to Orwell at first, well, the queen in this case. And then when she says no, because she's not going to share her throne, he very quickly goes, oh, okay, well, how about that cute sister of yours? Uh-huh. I wonder if he really meant the queen. I think he did. But now just a small part of me was after he's known that she kind of pushes him away constantly because when they were in the garden or he was hiding, she did the same thing. Um, but what, that was his way of then ultimately getting to Redival because remember, he says she catches Chunia's eyes, Redival. And so I, I wondered if he knew, okay, the first one she's not going to, but that's my way to get to the second one. Yeah, also he's a bit of a tart himself. Uh, so maybe he was just like, oh, we'll start with the person at the top and just keep working down and <laughs> until somebody a- agrees to marry me. Love how transactional this is. Yeah. I mean, also, men love mystery. And so if you're talking to this strong queen whose face is veiled, you're going to be curious. True. Ladies, men love mystery. Just saying it. Yeah, well, David's taken, so... <laughs> but Matt isn't. Please, ladies, please send me your resumes and I'll, I'll, I'll pass them on. <laughs> Bardia then takes Orwell out for one last sword practice. And he has two other things that he wants to tell her. First is that if she does feel fear when she goes out into that ring, don't feel it, don't show it. We're back to Frozen again. <laughs> and he also wants to replace her halberk, which is a, um, it's a kind of uh, vest that you use when you're fencing. He wants to replace it with something that's a little bit more befitting of a queen and a champion. And so they go to the king's bedchamber to look for something better. And they go in there and they see the fox. And Oral even comments that the fox is by the king's bedside. And she wonders why. And she says it was not possible he should love his old master. 
I'm not sure. Maybe the fox is a bigger man that he actually does have some love for his old master. Or just a fellow human being who is at death's door. I'm at the latter, at least. Potentially the former, but I was thinking, he's a, he's a human. I mean, even if you see some of the worst people dying, you, you almost pity or feel bad in those moments because, yeah, a human's dying. A normal person, I think, does. And then this chapter concludes, as they're looking through the armor, Orwell writes, And it was when we were most busied that the fox's voice from behind said, It's finished. We turned and looked. The thing on the bed, which had been half alive for so long, was dead, had died. If he understood it, seeing a girl ransacking his armory. Peace be upon him, said Bardia. We'll be done here very shortly. Then the women can come and wash the body. And we turned again at once to settle the matter of the halberks. Notice how matter-of-fact they are, how very little impact the king's death makes. And also, I would say, I think the fact that he comments that the women can come and wash the body later, because he doesn't regard the queen in that way. She is a soldier, she is a champion, she is the queen. Well, now on to the fun part. Chapter 19. The fight. After considerable preparations have been made, there is a royal procession to the duel. At the field of combat, Arnhem, the priest, offers a sacrifice. The final preparations are made, and then the trumpets sound to indicate the beginning of the duel between the queen and Argon. Trinia is stunned to see that the Veiled Queen will be his champion. Orwell and Argon fight, and she defeats him with relative ease, striking a fatal blow to his thigh. Afterwards, she mounts a horse and addresses the people. While Orwell would infinitely prefer an intimate dinner with close friends, it is expected for her to host a large feast. Since his wife has just entered labor, Bardia does not attend. As the feast turns into a drunken mess, the Queen departs to her private quarters. I usually listen to podcasts on one and a half, two times speed. I feel like if I was listening to ours, in particular your 150 word summaries, I'd need to do half speed. (laughs) A lot happens. It does. And so I mean that as a compliment. But yeah, listen to that a couple times before starting in case you're a listener who does not read the chapters. And I know that they're out there. I've actually had a few messages from people recently that said, I will get around to this book eventually, but for the time being... It's great to be able to listen along and find out what happens. Well, let's jump in. So, although the fight only lasts about 10 minutes in the end, the preparations were many, and Orwell tries to get the fox to don some splendid dress. And she comments that you never had more trouble with a peevish girl going to her first feast. The fox doesn't want to dress up. Bardia wants Orwell to fight without her veil, but she refuses. And... The resulting appearance makes her look quite terrible, quite terrifying to see this veiled figure. And then they try and get Trunia to dress up as well. And he doesn't want that either. He says, whether your champion kills or is killed, I'll fare no better in purple than in my old battle order. And then there's a royal procession out to the battlefield. And Orwell is put in mind of the times when Psyche went out to initially heal the people and then ultimately to be sacrificed. And she wonders if this journey is what the god meant when he said, you too shall be Psyche. I wonder, because we know that, from your summary again, that she doesn't die. And so probably from her mind, this wouldn't be her being Psyche, because Psyche was sacrificed for the people. But I wonder here if it's a different kind of sacrifice, that this actually is her like Psyche. But in Psyche's case, she just... she. Her sacrifice was a physical sacrifice. In Orwall's case, it's more of a metaphorical sacrifice of her old self. And now she's put on this new self that just lives completely for, well, in part herself, but in part the villagers. I mean, she just keeps busy as a queen now. Well, both Orwell and Psyche are going out with the expectation that they're going to die, but that they're going to die for the good of the people. And Orwell did die. She did, or at least most of her was, mm-hmm. and all that was left was the queen. Yep. And we're told that the lords were grave, because clearly they are unconvinced by Orwell's ability. But she says that the people were excited, and you get a sense of her disdain for the rabble, for the great unwashed masses. She says any fight was a free show for them, and a fight of a woman with a man better still because of an oddity. 
as those who can't tell one tune from another will crowd to hear a harp if a man plays it with his toes. <laughs> I also appreciate right around um, this period when she talked about Arnan in the priest and Arnam in the priest and how they were doing the sacrifices and the rituals, the things that needed to be done in preparation for this with the bowl. And how she makes a comment, well, obviously the gods are here to include themselves in the affairs. Yeah. Again, it's the idea of them interfering. Uh-huh. It was just so matter of fact, too. And so this pageantry continues, and then the fight finally begins. And Trunius shocked to find out that his champion is, in fact, the queen. And we're told that the men of Fars, they roar with laughter when they see a woman entering the battlefield. But she says the mob cheered, and they then fight. And Argon, he begins in a very cocky fashion, uh, but after Orwell grazes him, he takes it more seriously. and. Oral comments that, just to her, it seemed like any other match with Bardia, rather than a battle to the death. And she is a little bit worried that Argon's superior strength may win out, but she notices a change in him, and it's he realizes that she is a better swordsman than she is. Yeah, she notices death in his face. Yeah. And I like that she says, This is death. You will know it if you have seen it. Life more alive than ever a raging, tortured intensity of life. That moment when you know you're going to die and there's a change in you. And I like how she just said, life more alive than ever, mm. right before you die. And in Surprised by Joy, I remember there was an incident when Lewis was at the front and he thought he was going to die. And he just said, this is death. Hmm. Good connection. Anyway, the queen defeats him pretty easily with a clean shot to his leg. They don't have, the, no surgeon is going to be able to fix it. He's just going to bleed out. And she, it's such a clean hit that she comments that she was even less blood splattered than when she killed the pig. And she says that she then feels very weak all of a sudden and her legs were shaking. And she said, I felt myself changed too, as if something had been taken away from me. I have often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. I think, again, we come back to this idea that she is trying to masculinize herself, that she sees all things as feminine, as intrinsically weak, that she is going to kill, as in, in sort of becoming manly. This is the closest approximation to her losing her virginity in killing this guy. And she says something's changed. And speaking of James Bond, we talked about that earlier. The soundtrack to Casino Royale was Chris Cornell. He had a song called You Know My Name. And there's a line in it that says, if you take a life, do you know what you'll give? Odds are you won't like what it is. I'm just thinking here again of Joy Davidman. This whole her not liking her feminine self, that this, that at least the way you keep saying this, keeps reminding me of that. I'm not sure if Joy didn't like her feminine self. She just wanted Lewis to be able to recognize her feminine self. Oh, that could be. After her kill, the Fox and Bardia rush up. And we're told that, I think... The text is a little ambiguous, but it sounds like Bardia says, Blessed, blessed, he cried. Which is exactly what they called Psyche. Mm-hmm. Also, could this be what was meant by you two shall be Psyche? Mm-hmm. And more people rush about her, and she's rather annoyed by it. And the queen then goes to address the men of Fars. And then Bardia tells her that it's now necessary for her to hold a feast in the palace. And Orwell, see, this is... This, this is why I'm sympathetic to her. She, I think she's an introvert like me. She doesn't want to do a feast. She just wants a quiet night in. And also she's a little bit worried that they don't actually have anything to offer for a feast. But as they head back to the palace, Prince Trunia, he continues his attentions to her. And Oral quite enjoys it. She enjoys his flirtation. And she even says that she was actually happy. And she therefore immediately blames the gods for what happens next. Because Bardia comes up to her and says, Queen, the day's work is over. You'll not need me now. I'd take it very kindly if you let me go home. My wife's taken with her pains. We had thought it would not be so soon. I'd be glad to be with her tonight. His wife is giving birth, which I think, as excuses go, is pretty good for not turning up to a party. Yes. It's also interesting right here because she says, I understood in that moment all my father's rages. Then she doesn't expand a lot on that other than pointing out that the, the reason for that rage is the sentence, that day's work is over. She realizes his treatment towards her was just another day's work, which 
again, this is just like the fox where she assumes it's like either or. Either he loves her or it's just a day's work. Rather than, well, it could be a little bit of both. But I'm curious your thoughts on that statement. I understood in that all my father's rages. Like what part of the king is she relating to? Or she just, did, did he have moments like this or something that she goes, now I get why he was angry. I'm not entirely sure. Because I'm not sure how much she realizes her anger is unreasonable. Yes. I think it might be that her father was angry that people didn't love him. Mm. And here is Bardia, in her mind at least, saying that he doesn't love her. He just views her as a job. And she's thinking, you know what? My father was right. You know, he's sacrificing everything for this kingdom, running this kingdom, and people just treat him like a job. Nobody cares about him because nobody cares about me. You know what this is making me think of? Ooh, I think I've got something here for us. In, in my talk, actually, this was one of the quotes that I believe ended up making it in the day of. I don't remember. <laughs> but it's when Lewis talks about you know, essentially seek Christ and you'll get everything thrown in. Seek yourself and you won't get anything. In fact, if you seek yourself, your false self, you're going to be getting loneliness, rage, despair, anger. And he goes on and he says, seek Christ and you'll get yourself thrown in and you'll get him and everything else thrown in. And I think of that, you'll get loneliness, rage, despair. So we're seeing a scene here where she has built up this entire false self. She has sought herself. And exactly what Lewis said in Mere Christianity right near the end of the book is what's happening to her. She's getting despair, rage, and loneliness. So he's just showing and playing out what happens when you seek yourself rather than Christ with her? I wouldn't quite say yourself. She's putting our hope in mortal things in the same way that we often put our hope in mortal things rather than in Christ. And when that happens, you are going to be disappointed. Well, let me ask you this, though. When you put your hope in mortal things, isn't it ultimately for yourself to help either make yourself feel good. Like if I put things in accomplishments or success or pleasures or wealth, it's ultimately for myself. I think that's where it ends. I think that where it ultimately ends. Yep. Because it becomes that demon that Lewis talks about in The Four Loves. Mm-hmm. So they have this feast. Orwell hates it. She hates the men. She hates their drunkenness. And I couldn't help but think of Joy Davidman here with her husband who was a drunk. And... Lewis, whose brother Warney was also a drunk, although apparently a much nicer drunk. But Orwell herself, she actually has a bit too much to drink, and she fantasizes about Bardia being her husband, and that she is the one at home giving birth, this time to Psyche. We see her distorted desire again. Yeah. And she heads to bed, and she tries to push aside these thoughts. She writes, There's the crying again. No, it's only the buckets at the well. Shut the window, Pooby. To your bed, child. Do you love me, Pooby? Kiss me goodnight. Goodnight. She's reaching out for love, even from her servant. The king's dead. He'll never pull my hair again. A straight thrust and then a cut in the leg. That would have killed him. I am the queen. I'll kill Orwell too. So she goes from a fantasy of being married with a child, and it goes dark very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we saw her, her, that part of her she's tried to suppress pop up again with the voice and the cries and the, the gardens, and she makes a firm resolve to kill that part of her, Orwell too. So that was a very intense couple of chapters. <laughs> and for listeners, I mean, we are getting close. What I think there's two more left in this book, and then or part one, and then we start part two, which... I'd imagine, it's been actually a while since I've read it now, it starts giving us a lot of answers. If it doesn't, I'll be greatly frustrated. <laughs> and after we've done next episode, uh, which is finishing part one, we'll have Andrew Lazo on to explain everything that's happened. <laughs> so be sure to go to the Slack channel and ask your questions. Yes. Now, one thing before we wrap up that I just wanted to read, because I've thought about it a few times as we've been reading this book and particularly the references recently to children and uh, 
Orwell's controlling love of Psyche, treating her like a child. And I was reminded of a poem by my favorite poet, which is... Not a clue. Oh, come on, Matt. Khalil Gibran. Uh, that, that doesn't even sound familiar. I've read one of his poems on this podcast recently. Anyway, and this is from his book, The Prophet. And somebody asks the prophet, speak to us of children. And this is what he says. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backwards nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with all his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves the bow that is stable. So in this poem of Khalil Gibran, this prophet is speaking about how we should regard our children, and he's basically making the point that they're not you. That they come from God, that they're loved by God just like you, but you can't control them. That they are like arrows and you are the bow, and God uses you to send them out into the world. Well said, I've never been much into poetry, but the the couple times you have read poetry on this podcast, I've very much enjoyed the selection. Like this is actually a very beautiful poem, in part probably because I can follow it. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of work to understand what he's saying, and he's communicating a very beautiful truth. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. David, you could, this is, I just picture you reading this to Marie. I may or may not have read her some of these. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have two more chapters before the end of part one. So that's chapters 20 and 21. So join us next week. When we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.